It's great to be in the house with you guys tonight. You guys got a lot of energy. A lot of fellas tonight, too. Man. <laughs> Ladies, if you meet a guy that's charging this hard in their life, it's a good sign. But seriously, like, sometimes guys, like, they do the autopilot thing. I'm like, eh, whatever. Maybe life will be okay. So, fellas, like, to be here on a Thursday night, late, worship message, good sign. So, anyways, on to a message. The past several times I've been up in here, I've been talking about understanding God as Abba, Father, which means Daddy God, and how that single concept will transform your theology. If you want to root out all bad theology in your life, you only need to find God as Daddy God. Because I realized that when I became a father myself, that all this bad theology I had in my mind, I would never apply to my own kids. And so I don't encourage people to become a father for the sake of having good theology. (laughs) But I encourage you guys, it's foreign language to us. We assign all these identities to God as Lord and King and Master, and, and all those identities have connotations, have meanings, have, have things that inform our faith, and but we inform ourselves according to who Jesus says God is, who says, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit inside you cries, Abba. That's the name of the Spirit inside of you that calls out to the Father. It says, Daddy, when we encounter that, all of a sudden our bad theology falls away. And so tonight I'm going to expand upon that, upon a really tricky topic. And tonight's a night where if you disagree with something, don't write me an email. No, I'm, you can write me an email, but uh, just you don't have to believe me. That's all. If you want to dialogue about things, because I'm going to say something that's going to probably offend a lot of you, and that's okay. I don't have a job to lose, so you can be offended. <laughs> but what I am going at stake for is I want to go for the sake of your freedom and your faith. And so I'm going to dare to offend you for the sake of your freedom. Is that all right with you? As a kid, have you ever been in trouble, like bad trouble as a kid? I did a couple times, and I'll never forget it. I would argue with my sister. I had a sibling. We'd always just just at each other's throats all the time. And we'd get in huge screaming fights. And this was back in the days when um, there were no cell phones, right? Like your father left in the morning and he wouldn't know if you were dead by noon because there's no way to communicate with them. He's like, he would leave at 7 a.m., get home at like 6.30 and like, oh, they're still here. Like, what happened today? You know, it's like completely different life and scenario when we are constantly connected. Text messages were always informed. So growing up, we'd have like these you know, drag down, beat down fights. And when me and my sister would misbehave and get in trouble and it was bad enough, my mom would use the words that every mother knows that would make your blood run cold and strike fear into your body. Wait till your father gets home. (laughs) The worst six words in the human language when you're a child. Wait till your father gets home. I didn't even know what that meant. But saying that as a, as a you know, young child in, in, in my adolescence, and in my early teens, is like the worst idea possible because it's like you'd have to sit there and wait all day. It's like it's only 11 o'clock and he doesn't get home for like seven hours. What am I going to do? And all day I would stress out, what is dad going to do when he comes home? 
I'm going to be in so much trouble. We're both going to be in trouble. And like you run like, you know, in your mind, you start running through scenarios, right? The spoilers, my dad was like the nicest guy ever. <laughs> but as a child, like this is like, oh my gosh, my father's going to know. I'm in this like delay. I have to wait for him to come home and I don't know what thing I'm going to face. And what I learned in this time is that delayed punishment is the worst thing ever. When you're in trouble, you just kind of want to get it over with. Because the anticipation of punishment is just as bad as the actual punishment. Now, when I was 16 years old, I'm the youngest of three, I was actually, uh, my siblings were out of the house. And so my parents went out of town, they went to Cabo. They're actually in Cabo this exact week. It's so funny, I'm sharing the story. So they went out and I was left home for the very first time in my basically teen life. I was 16, I was driving then already. And so my parents left, and we lived on a farm. I loved dirt bikes, quads, things like that. 26 acres, so naturally, as your boy, you're like, you go build jumps, you know? And so we had this whole track. I loved dirt bikes, motocross. My parents, like, left me and said, you have one rule. No dirt bikes. Got it, Mom and Dad. And so as a son who had one day preached the Bible and lead a ministry here, naturally, I rode my dirt bike every day. I disobeyed my parents. I brought my best friend over. His name's Forrest. And every single day, my parents would call, hey, what have you been doing? Oh, you know, just writing, I mean, reading, you know, my Bible. <clears throat> and I was in the background, I was like, bruh. And I'm like, what's that sound? I'm just not feeling very good, actually. Riding our dirt bikes, having a blast. And so that was perfectly fine. We were getting away with it until my buddy came up short on a jump and took a handlebar to the face. There's blood, we're like, okay, we're gonna be okay, we're gonna be okay. Like, maybe dad's got like some sutures, my dad's a general physician. It's like, we gotta have something in the house, like cover this up. We go up to the house, like, oh man, crazy. So dirt and, you know, there's some blood obviously. And so he takes a glass of water, like let's wash it off. And so we're thinking, we got this, we got this, we can cover this up. And so he takes a drink of water and water comes out his chin. That uh, isn't good. <laughs> Washes away the rest of his mouth. All five of his bottom teeth are gone. Oops. So naturally we had to go to the emergency room. And I'm devastated. And this is like, I don't know, like, I just have to call the Pueblo Bonito is all I know in the world. And like, they're not there. Like, there's no cell phones, right? And so here I'm like trying to track them down. And so eventually I call, like, and I get the reception, like, have my folks call me and answer machines back then, right? This is crazy. And not only had I lied to my parents and confronting my parents with this awful lie that I promised that I wasn't going to do when they left and I lied even after they called later, is my best friend got horribly hurt in the process. And all I wanted them to do was like ground me into the Stone Age right then and there. It's like, I will give up everything, just administer the punishment now. And this is like three days into their vacation. I'm not going to see them for like five more days. And they're just like kind of silent. Like, we'll talk about this when we get home. No yelling. No anger, I just, like, it was very clear I was in deep trouble. 
and I had to sit for like five days. Like, I have, you, you know, when you're in trouble, you read your Bible a ton. You're like, you're hoping that God works us out. Like, you know, I was waking up in the middle of the night, like, surely that didn't happen. It was the most trouble I'd ever been in. And waiting, waiting for like, I just, please punish me. It'll make me feel so much better. And that anxiety over waiting to be punished, waiting for those shooter job, please like make it happen. Why? It's because it makes us feel like we've kind of settled the balances, that we've kind of gotten back. We know where we stand when the punishment is fulfilled. It makes you feel like you can move on. There's something cathartic about being punished because then you feel like, I can move on now. It's done. But until then, you feel stuck and you feel paranoid about what's going to happen or not knowing what is going to happen, just that something's going to happen. And what I've described there is a perfect illustration of many people's relationship with God. They've done something wrong. Maybe they've fallen. They've had a compromise. They've had a major sin. Maybe they have something, you know, they really feel ashamed of it. And so they're just waiting for God to issue his punishment. They're fearful of coming to God. They don't even want to pray, go to church. They don't tell anybody. They're just like, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. And so we have these people who've sinned and fallen short. They're feeling shame. And and now they feel that they're in limbo waiting for God to repay what you've done. If you're like me, I had a theology like that where it's like, I didn't know, like, when I did something wrong, I just anticipate I'm going to get a bad grade. There's going to be a trick question, a pop quiz tomorrow. Like, I have a pop quiz in school. The next thing is like, it's because I did something bad yesterday. I live my life like feeling shame and waiting for the consequence, the payment to come sometime later. And I carried this into the majority of my life, wondering, will I lose a job? Will I have my girlfriend break up with me? Will I have you know, a car accident? Will I have my dreams crushed? Will I get sick? And so a lot of us, sometimes when we fall and we have shame, we just want to get it over with. And for God not to strike us with a lightning bolt is kind of frustrating. We feel that shame. We're like, God, just like put me back in the right place. I want to pay my dues and move on. And we're convinced that somehow, some way, there's going to be hell to pay for what we've done. Just hopefully not in hell. (laughs) I was a chronic person. I thought I could lose my salvation my entire life. If there's a Guinness Book of World Records for a number of times of being saved, I've got you all beat. Like, you never be too sure. Every altar call, I'm there. I'm like, just want to make sure. <laughs> but one of the hardest things to grasp in this life as a believer is that all of your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for on the cross. If there's one thing that is going to just gnaw at you your entire life for as long as you live and until the day you're down in the ground, the one thing you're going to be confronted with is really everything, past, present, and future, was all paid for at the cross. You see, we have an okay idea that, okay, my past sins are forgiven. But what about now? What about tomorrow's? What about next week's? And the truth is, is that the cross handled all punishment for all sin for all time. It's one of the hardest things really to like embrace. Like we, we see those, those words on the screen like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't believe a word of that. <laughs> we know that's truth. And I'm pointing to it in Romans 6.10 for 
the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. Hallelujah. How, there, whoa, let's try this again. Hallelujah, there's not going to be another cross. Jesus' one sacrifice was sufficient. He's not like surprised, like, oh, I didn't anticipate this. They got Trump in there. Like, oh, I got to go back down to heaven. Like, he's not, he's not worried at all. When he went to the cross, it was sufficient. More than it's sufficient. First John 2, 2, this is in my notes, but it says that he's the atoning sacrifice, not only for our sins, but the sins of the entire world. Not only did he take care of all your sins, past, present, future, he took care of all the sins of everyone who doesn't love him and know him yet. That's how full the cross was in its atonement for us. Mind-blowing. But there's this radical contradiction in Christianity. Some people don't like to broach thorny subjects. I kind of run at them. <laughs> but we actually don't preach or teach that all sins are paid for. We really pay for that you are redeemed and forgiven, but now. Well, that was the past. You kind of get a pass for like all the things you didn't know until now, but now you're saved. Now it's time. You better get right, because now you know better. And so what our theology tells us in our practical life, even though that the Bible says all sins, past, future, present, for eternity are paid for, that we live these lives saying, I was forgiven, but I have to pay off my mistakes in my believer life. And that any new sins that we commit, that God is going to have retribution for. And we actually extol this belief. We actually elevate this belief as a virtue in the faith. We disciple people. We make disciples according to this belief. And we've put a really nice name upon this practice that we say, once you are saved, we groom you into, be a, into being fearful of ever sinning for that. Then God is going to have his payment upon you. You know what we call that? Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. It's an interesting phrase. Our modern theology teaching discipleship aims to develop fear of the Lord in the body of the church, the body of believers. You're saved, but now we need to cultivate that fear of the Lord in, in all of us. And it sounds noble, it sounds righteous, it sounds religious, but it's actually toxic. Isn't it ironic that we encourage and we elevate fear of the Lord, but every single time in the Bible when someone has fear, when they encounter God, you know what God says? Do not fear. He's not like, yep, this is exactly right. Be afraid. Fear me. Yet fear of the Lord is this concept, this principle, this discipline that we like strive for. We want to have fear of the Lord. But this is where sometimes our English fails us. So fear of the Lord is mentioned, I think, like about 30 times in the Bible. 24 of those times it's in Proverbs and Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Such as that. Only two times in the New Testament. But it's interesting about the Greek, about fear in this context, is that fear can sometimes mean, yes, like afraid. But it's a secondary mean. That means to be have, having reverence for a husband. Reverence for a husband, that's interesting. We are the bride of Christ. 
or his body. Like the whole, the whole imagery of Christ coming back for us is he's the bridegroom, we're the bride. The fear of the Lord is not to be afraid of God, but it's actually having awe, respect, honor for the husband who's Jesus. It's about lordship, isn't it? It's about being submitted to, to God and who he is. Fear of the Lord has nothing to do without being afraid of him. It has everything about being in right relationship with God. He's your Lord and your husband. And the Bible further categorically disassociates fear from a healthy relationship with God. It's not even like close. It categorically, listen to me, the Bible categorically disassociates fear from a healthy relationship with God. If you have fear in your relationship with God, you actually have a dysfunctional relationship with God. Now I'm starting to offend people. If you have fear in your relationship with God, you have a dysfunctional relationship with God. 1 John 4, 16, I'll prove it to you. It says, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. But that's not what we teach, is it? That's not what we believe. We teach fear of the Lord because we want people to stop sinning. We teach fear of the Lord because we want people's behavior to shape up and shape up. You know, like we want it to like get better. Do a good job, believer. Fear the Lord. You better get right before God gets you. You know, something like we come up with all sorts of things. What are we desiring in people when we want them to develop fear of the Lord? We want them to behave. That's what we're saying. We want them to not sin. Now, why would we do that if God is not punishing sin? Remember, perfect love casts off fear because fear involves punishment. All sin was paid for on the cross. You see, Jesus came as the savior, not as the enforcer. Like the mob, the mafia, were like, go break his legs. You know, <laughs> Jesus came down and he says, where are you? I'm here. Is what Jesus says when he comes on the earth inviting you into relationship with him. Not, where are you? I'm here. One sounds like someone's rescuing you. The other sounds like an axe murderer. (laughs) Same words, isn't it? But one has fear and the other has love. Which are you? When you have a fear-based relationship with God, it sounds like an axe murder coming for you. This is funny. Even in the original sin, God's words, where are you? Adam, where'd you go? Our tendency is to run and hide because we fear punishment. But we teach fear of the Lord as a deterrent to sinful choices. But it's actually a backwards formula for righteous living. If you want to live righteously, don't do it out of fear of the consequence. It's like saying, I'm faithful to my wife because man, a divorce is paperwork you don't even want to think about. Oh, the attorney's fees. Like, that's not why I'm faithful to my wife. I'm faithful to my wife for many reasons, but largely 
because my love relationship with her wants to protect and preserve that relationship. I'm not faithful to her because I'm afraid of the consequence. I want to protect what I have, the relationship. I want to protect the love that we have. And so I live righteously in our marriage, not out of like fear of what might happen. I live for, for what I could gain, for what I could experience and enjoy. Love compels me to change my behavior. I don't change my behavior because I'm terrified of the outcome of the consequence. But our theology sometimes teaches us that God's actually leaving divorce on the table for his relationship with us. If we really mess it up, if we really mess it up, oh man, there's going to be privileges lost, there's going to be consequences. But you see, here's the other contradiction too, is that we want grace for people because it gets you into the kingdom. If you're not a believer, we're all about like forgiving you, what you've done, oh, don't worry about it. Grace, we are all about grace because it gets you in the kingdom. But we want you to have fear because we want you to keep in line. Isn't that funny how that switches? And we're actually sometimes concerned that the grace of God is too good. That really there should be some limits to God's grace. I mean, come on. You ever like thought that? Like, come on, you know, not him. You know, like, <laughs> that we actually like start to wonder, like, come on, God, like you didn't, you didn't plan for that kind of forgiveness that much. Like there's like, kind of, you know, like you go to all you eat food buffet, you're thinking back around, it's not really all you can eat, you know. Sometimes we treat the grace of God that way. And there is nothing reasonable about how God redeemed you. You realize that? It says, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Not even reasonable. The minute an act becomes rational, it ceases from becoming loving. The minute an act becomes rational is the minute it stops being loving. Christ died for you. He loved you. It was an irrational act. Love always is irrational. It never makes sense. So you're like, ah, oh, like, you know, they're intentionally sinning. Like, that's not fair. And it's like, I, I don't know about you, but like, I, every sin I ever commit, I kind of wanted to commit. I don't know about you. <laughs> it's like, I get like the accident ones, but it's like, I had no idea this would be fun. This is terrible, you know, like. And God still saves you. And you're like, but it doesn't make sense. And it's like, the entire thing doesn't make sense. Because love doesn't make sense. The minute it makes sense is the minute it's manipulation. The minute it has an agenda. And God looked at you and he's like, there's no agenda here. I'm just going to love you and save you because of who you are, because that's who I am. Because the minute it becomes a rational, making sense proposition is the minute it's not loving anymore. And so what we do is we, when we cultivate fear the Lord and use it to create a fear punishment from God is actually the confession that we think the grace of God is too good. If you're going to scare someone with fear the Lord, you're basically confessing that the grace of God is good but not that good. It's like we don't want anybody ripping off God and getting away with too much. Some of you are like, I use the grace of God to get drunk, but that guy's like cheating on his wife, you know? 
I'm like, come on, it's not even fair. And if you read the Bible, you realize that people gripe a lot about fairness, and God is like, I don't. I hear you talking. I hear you. But love is irrational. And in our hearts, we want God to make an exception for his grace. Recently, someone I know really well turned out to have a double life. Not only that, like, implodes a marriage, and oh no, there's this, a boy who's two years old. And the boy's like, he doesn't know what's going on. two, you don't know what's going on. And so now all of a sudden, the dad's out of the picture. Everything's like in chaos, and he's calling me daddy. He's calling every other male figure daddy. And it challenges my, my, my theology because I'm looking at this like disaster, and I'm trying to tell myself, actually, that was on the cross too. It's super hard. It challenges my theology because I kind of want grace to cover every single thing except for like maybe child abandonment and like bad fathers and things like that. <laughs> but love is irrational. That was already paid for on the cross. And even in my own heart, I'm like, good, I'm good. Like, you know. <laughs> I had a girlfriend who dumbed me for this like guy who was probably just a fine guy. But I remember like, I was, I got, he came to school with a pimple on the middle of his nose. I was like, <laughs> like awesome. I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like so excited. And we like treat people who we think are not deserving of love and forgiveness with like some vengeance. We kind of want those who do bad things to suffer bad consequences. I'm just here to tell you that's not the rules of the kingdom. As much as you want that to come in, like you're not going to find that answer in the scriptures. You're not going to find that in a daddy God. You're going, you'll find that through other gods and other systems of theology. If you encounter daddy God, you're, you're not finding that. Because here's the thing is that when you, secretly, when you secretly believe that God will punish someone for something extreme they did, eventually you're going to secretly fear that God's going to punish you. It says that when you judge others, it comes back upon you. That's not the judgment of God. That's your own judgment coming on a boomerang for you. That's what that is. And so you need to decide tonight. If there's one thing you decide tonight, it's probably this. is that What do you believe about the truth about God's punishment? Just simply. Do you believe it's all on the cross? Do you really believe it's all on the cross? Or do you, do you believe that God is still in the business of providing retribution and payback? Now, this is the scandal of grace, isn't it? Grace, it's not just good, it's scandalously good. This is why grace is controversial. We have a book called Hyper Grace. There's like even a term for it, like hyper grace. It's almost like God can be too good. You know, it's like either God is better than we can imagine or he's not. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes people have these ideas of theology of God. I'm like, that's good, but like, that's not better than I can think. When it like confounds my wisdom and my logic and my reasoning, saying like this disaster relationship, this victimization of this poor innocent child, this was paid on the cross and God loves this person. Despite all these things, that offends my mind. I don't want that answer, but the, the heart of God demands that I believe it. Now, you're, I know some of you guys are like just itching in your seat, but wait a minute. I'm not saying that there's no consequence to sin. Be really clear. Maybe this is where I'm going to pull back some of the frustration. <laughs> I'm not at all saying that there are no consequences to sin. Sin always has a consequence on earth. The Bible is super clear. Galatians 6 says, God will not be mocked. You're going to reap what you sow. 
That doesn't mean that the punishment of God comes upon you. It just means that if you go and rob a bank, you're forgiven in the kingdom, but your butt's going to jail. You know, before the you know, judge, but I'm forgiven in the kingdom and God paid for this on the cross. It's like, you're doing 10 to 15, pal. You have lots of time to talk to Jesus in a cell. Doesn't care. Because God loves you so much that he gave you a choice. And he loves you so much that he's going to give you the results of your choices. He's got to give you both. It'd actually be unloving to make you so powerful to make you have a choice, but never have you reap what you sow. So while everything is paid for on the cross, our sin can come and get nasty. Not only does it, we have earthly consequences, it's just fuel for the fire for the enemy. If you want to like coordinate attack on your life, you start messing around and, and produce all this sin in your life, the enemy's just like, awesome, I got fuel for days now. I got shame, I got condemnation, I got guilt, I got isolationism, I got all these different things. You know that the Bible says the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion? You know how lions attack prey? They isolate one. They don't like go after like, you know, five of them at once. They pick off one. And you better not be like wounded or have a limp or, you know, kind of be a little bit slower. Like they're going to go after the ones that are weakest and most likely to be isolated. So when we fall, you're forgiven to the kingdom, but the enemy wants you to be isolated so he can pick you off. You know, some people, oh, it's God, like the fear of the Lord, like brought me to my knees and I did this. And it's like, no, like stupid hurts. It's like one of my fundamental laws of life is stupid hurts. Stupid's expensive too. I have so many stories upon that one particular truth. I'm going to exercise some self-restraints. Here's the problem is that fear is a wonderful motivator. It's far easier to motivate people with fear than to motivate them with love. To motivate someone with fear of the Lord is actually like the really easy way out. You can scare anybody with hell and scare anybody with sin, sickness, disease, consequence. You can scare, like that's not hard. That's like condemnation, religion 101. (laughs) It's much harder to shape someone's behavior based on desire for love and protecting and loving relationships. Our culture and society rewards fear-based motivation. That's why all of our laws come with consequences instead of like telling you all the benefits of following all the laws. And you see like red light violation, $9,000 fine, you know. It's not telling you, oh, you, you know, obey all the laws, you'll feel really good in your car listening to radio. It doesn't do that. We motivate and we correct behavior according to fear. But sometimes the church falls victim to this tendency to motivate people with fear. And this happens way too much, way more than I like to admit. But when the church does this, the church is unknowingly discipling people into a fear-based relationship with their loving father. You lead people with fear of the Lord and all this fear of what God's going to do, you're going to create a fear-based relationship in that person. That they may never be able to overcome because fear is like this like crazy emotion that like once you experience it, it's really hard to overcome. My daughter, who's now five, loves animals, jumps on the dog at home, 
for almost five years, no problem with the dog whatsoever. Loves a dog, rides it like a horse. This dog's a saint. It's crazy. I would have, like, barked at our kids at some point. We go to Costa Rica, and there's a dog on the beach. It thinks it's playing with Scarlet, and she, like, thinks the dog is attacking and running after her. She, no matter how many times I tell her that dog was not chasing you, she's now afraid of stranger dogs. She asks me, is this a nice dog? Despite the years of just loving every animal, every creature, kissing it on the face and on the nose and like all those things, this one experience with fear is so ingrained. It's never coming out. Not for a long time. So when we motivate people with fear, we create these fear-based relationships that people have with God never realizing that we're slowly poisoning their relationship with Jesus. And instead of creating sons and daughters in the kingdom, we actually are creating, creating fearful slaves of a master. It's two different outcomes. And fear is what determines if you are a son or a slave in the kingdom. Fear determines whether you're a son or a slave in the kingdom. Do you want to know why we have so many Christians who've got zero intimate relationship with God? It's because they've succeeded in developing fear of the Lord. As long as you are fearful of God, you will never have any intimacy with God. As long as you are fearful of God, you will never have any intimacy with God. Why? It's because fear and intimacy are incompatible. You cannot have both. The two cannot coexist in any relationship. If you want to be a son or a daughter, you must root out fear in your relationship with God because it is impossible to authentically love any person whom you fear. Let me say that again. It is impossible to authentically love any person whom you fear. Those two feelings and beliefs cannot coexist. If you still have fear in your relationship with God, it's because you're not encountering perfect love. Remember what 1 John 4 said? It said that perfect love casts out fear. If you have fear in your relationship, you are not perfected in love. If you want to like truly be the best that you can be in the kingdom, you have to eliminate fear. It says, if you still have fear, you're not perfected in the kingdom. Like, I want to be perfect in the kingdom. You got to get rid of fear. You are still saved. Like, don't, don't misunderstand me. Like, we're not talking about salvation-based issues. I'm talking about relationship-based issues with your creator. I don't know how many of you guys are in it for the fire insurance. I'm in it for the relationship. An outrageously loving act towards me demands that I have a loving relationship back to that person. It's like I'm not trying to be guilted into my behavior. I'm here to have a relationship with them. That's his greatest desire with you is to have a relationship with you. Not that you just did not go to hell. It's that you have a relationship with him. He lives in you, right? He's not like, oh, like attend church and give. This is perfect. It's like, not only did I save you, I made my dwelling place in you. Why? So he could have direct access to you. He did not have to live in you. Isn't that crazy? Just so you wouldn't like think like, I need to go to God. And like people are like, God, I just come to you. It's like, he's in you. Oh. Like, if we really grasp that Christ is in you because he wants relationship with you, it'll transform everything. And so the sign of a mature relationship 
in Christ is not that you follow the rules because you are afraid of what might happen. A mature relationship says, I have freedom and I choose purity of my life. I choose to live differently because I'm preserving this wonderful relationship that just blows my mind, that makes no sense to me, but it's the most loving thing in all of existence. So why do we have such a hard time believing that God doesn't punish us? It's because we've disguised it under another name. How many know that you can hide the truth by using different language? You might have a brother who's a drug dealer, but you're like, he's a pharmacist? Hmm. Oh, that's cool. Where's he work guy? You know, just down the corner. <laughs> I once said I was, you know, an entrepreneur, and so I was like, that's just another word for saying you're unemployed. <laughs> But calling something by a different name doesn't make the lie true. And how have we done this with God's punishment? We don't explicitly say that God punishes us now for the sin, but we say God disciplines us. God disciplines us. I recently had someone tell me that their divorce was God's discipline on their life. It's like, well, God hates force. Seems like an unusual punishment and discipline. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And a lot of people, maybe not in this room, that doesn't sound weird to anybody. Like, yeah, that's right. I read, I'm not, not even kidding you. Like, someone said that their quadriplegic paralysis was a result because they had wandering hands and were finding themselves in temptation. And now they're a quadriplegic. They don't wander anymore and participate in sin. It's like, this is awful theology. Awful theology. But it doesn't sound off anymore. Here's the one problem with that, and I'm going to close with this. There's one Bible passage, one, that kind of seems to affirm this crazy notion. Do you want to know what it is? It's Hebrews 12, 6. And it says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. The Lord scourges every son he receives and loves. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means to scourge someone? Scourging is what happened to Jesus before he went on the cross. A scourge is a torturous act against a criminal. The Romans perfected this art. It was originally devised by the Jews, perfected by the Romans. Using a weapon called a flagrum. A handle with three leather throngs on it. On the edges of it were ingrained meshes of metal, bronze, zinc. Sometimes it would include a hook on one of those. I've never seen the Passion of Christ movie for this exact reason. It's what Jesus experienced. He was scourged before he went to the cross. And 40 lashes of the flagrum, 40 instances of the scourge was a death penalty. And that's why the Jews did 40 minus one. To basically scourge you within an inch of your life. People would rather be dead than have a scourge. And yet here the scriptures somehow tell us that God 
disciplines those he loves and scourges the son whom he receives. And there's something really wrong with this idea because this is the outlier in the scriptures. Does God really discipline his kids by scourging? How do we explain this? Does God really use the same imagery that tortured the Son of God, Jesus, in relationship to us? Is that a parallel that we can embrace? I'll have to tell you it to you next time. Love you guys. Okay, I'll punch him for that, for you. And we'll just call that the consequences of your sin. <laughs> I was also thinking while Eric was preaching, um, I have sons and daughters. And sometimes I'll go, please don't make, they'll tell me they're going to make this choice. And I'm like, please don't do that. Because I think this is what's going to happen. And I think a lot of times whenever they make that choice, and then I actually, what I said was going to happen actually comes true. And they don't want to come back to me because they think I'm going to say, I told you so. That is the last thing on my mind. I tell them that because I want to protect them. I want to protect their hearts. And the minute they make that choice, I'm right in there just to help them get back on their feet. I had a daughter sometime back who started her child before she started her marriage. And she was afraid to tell me because I had asked some questions. I went to her and I said, let me tell you something. Every child deserves to come into a life that's shame-free. So... This little baby, whatever problems you have with the Lord that you think he's not going to forgive, I'm going to ask you to work those out. Because my grandchild is coming into the world shame-free. We're going to love this baby. So if you have babies in your life, and they're the consequences, and I'm going to ask you all to stand on the worship band to come up. If you have babies in your life tonight, and there are the consequences if y'all want to stand up. <laughs> Everybody's afraid to stand. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have babies in my life that not everybody can always see. But they're there because God was so clear with me. He's like, Eric, please don't do that. Because this is what's going to happen if you do it. And you know what? I went right by him, and I did those things. And he has helped me live and develop a shame-free life. And he's continuing to do that. It's an ongoing process. So tonight, if you're here, and if our uh, prayer team can come up, if you're here tonight... And there's anything that we can pray with you about. doesn't mean that you have some secret if you come forward that you don't want to tell everybody. If there's anything that you really related with tonight, I just want to ask you to come up because we would love to pray for you. 
because we want you to walk out of here tonight shame-free. We want you to walk out tonight feeling loved. I don't care if you sinned on the way here. That's actually under the blood. I know, that's scandalous, huh? We love God. We love how he loves. And we'd love to love you with prayer. So if you have a prayer need, come forward as our worship team starts. If you have a friendship need, that's most of us. We're also going to hang out in the back. So whatever you need tonight, get filled up before you leave. We would love to get to know you better. Thanks for coming. God, tonight I pray that the words that were spoken, the revelation that we come out this night with, that it wouldn't disappear, but that it would dwell in our hearts and actually come into maturity. I pray a blessing over every person. I break the power of every Bible verse that's been used over any of your lives to manipulate you or to control you or to make you feel ashamed or condemned. And I speak life, health, and resurrection of your faith tonight and hope beyond all belief in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for coming.